0: Hey everybody! Um, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Tonight's episode is a particularly interesting one because we have with us today uh, Dr. Volker Turk, who's the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection of uh, for Refugees Protection um, at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Geneva. And we'll be talking to Volker tonight about uh, the important work that he's doing. To protect the rights of refugees and internally displaced people um, throughout the world, and then and then ask a few broader questions about where he sees the UN today, um, more than 70 years since its founding, and and where he thinks things will go in the future. So, welcome, Volker. Hi, good evening, Scott. So, how long have you worked for UNHCR and and what are some of the highlights that you had? Did it work like you thought it would when you first started working there or is it different?
1: So I've been working for UNHCR for almost 30 years. And I have to say throughout my professional career, despite the fact that we deal with some of the most vulnerable people on earth, it has been an incredible privilege to work for refugees, for stateless people, for the, for the forcibly displaced. and. I've had incredible moments of deep uh, connection with people, seeing that whatever I do has a, a huge impact on the lives of people. And yeah, I've been, I think I've been incredibly privileged to, to do this work. And so you have asked me about some of the highlights. I, You know, just to give you one example, when mm-hmm. I was in Congo in 97, it was sort of turning from Sair to Congo, Democratic Mm -hmm. Republic of Congo, somewhere in Kisangani, which is sort of, well, quite far away from the couple of hundred kilometers away from the Rwandan border. And when all these Rwandan refugees arrived and went through the jungle in order to escape, uh, I heard about one guy who got arrested by the military and it was already getting dark we had curfew and, you know, we we were told that if we don't get him out of the military detention center, he'll be killed that night. So mm-hmm. we went there and I was warned that, you know, this could potentially be quite dangerous because the military don't want to be talked to in, in, mm-hmm. in any way. And, and I said, so I basically engaged with the military told them that I knew that they had someone and that we would like to take him out from, from there and, and and find a way for him to go somewhere else and um, yeah in the end after quite some I would say aggressive encounters we we managed to get him out and uh, managed to get him to hospital and and saved his life basically so that that was one the other one was Wow! last year, yeah, so that's, you know, that's very concrete, you know, work as a protection officer out in the field. Last year, I led the development of the Global Compact on Refugees. So despite all the skepticism around multilateralism, we still got the Global Compact adopted. And I, I led all these formal consultations. And it was amazing. At the end of the sixth formal round of consultations, I think I almost thought that I was channeling the universe in, in the way that I talk to states. And um, <laughs> I think right. it was, it was quite, quite almost a transcendental experience to, to bring this collective exercise of multilateralism to an end, which of course, you know, I was in a way responsible for it, but of course it was a collective exercise that made sure that everyone contributed, member states, NGOs, the private sector, the World Bank Group, and so forth. So that was an amazing experience.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And um, I guess it's probably panned out in a really different way than you thought when you started working for the UN 30 years ago. Is that true?
1: I think, you know, I I when I grew up 20 years, I was born 20 years after the end of the Second World War in Austria. And, you know, of course, my upbringing, my my whole socialization was very much influenced by by the horrors of the Second World War, by what happened in my own country, what people right. did to each other. So yeah. I think I was still part of that generation that said, never again, how could we ever do this to each other? How could this happen in, in, in my own country by, by people who probably were my neighbors and i mean their right at least their parents mm-hmm. um and so uh, this moment of never again search for a better world what can we do to change it what how can we make sure that these things never happen again that was very much the motivation why i joined the un because for me the un at the time was an incredible symbol of 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 global care, of care for others, of looking beyond national boundaries, of making sure that something for the greater good. And i that feeling has never left me throughout these years. And despite some of the, of course, some of the frustrations that we have as well, um, I, of course, the in, you know, sometimes you get a bit tired with the internal bureaucracy and things, but Nonetheless, I, I still see the UN in the same way I saw as I saw as I saw it when I joined it. So, yeah, I I have been incredibly pleased to to work for for this organization, for the UN, for this cause, and it's been yeah, it's been quite an experience.
0: Right. I mean, when I you know both of us have had the good fortune to travel you know extremely widely across the world and work on. know political and displacement and a whole range of other issues and met you know probably tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people uh over the years and you know unfortunately i think in terms of perception of the un there's a there's still a very large misperception by a very large number of people about what the un actually does what it is and how successful it actually is and that's you know certainly one part of our objective with this podcast to get out there the message that you know despite what you might hear on the news um the un is doing extraordinary things Mm -hmm. every single day and the tens of thousands of people that work there often under really difficult circumstances um are collectively responsible for alleviating massive amounts of of human suffering you know on a daily basis and to imagine a world without the UN and all of all of its agencies, it would just be, you know, a a deplorable situation to ponder, you know, Mm -hmm. so so much has been achieved since 1945. What what do you think? What if there was a a new gathering to redraft the UN Charter, let's say, as occurred in San Francisco um, in 1944? which is really a, mar- a marvel of a document, you know, and I, again, urge everybody to go read it. I mean, it's extraordinary what they came up with so long ago mm-hmm. um, and that it's still in place. Um, do you think the the same formulations would be put forward if there was sort of a UN 2.0 design today? And if <laughs> so, how do you think it would change?
1: I think, you know, we are currently in a phase in in the world that reminds me a little bit of, and in fact, a quote from Antonio Gramsci, who is an Italian philosopher from the 19th mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he said one thing that I think very aptly describes our world today, and he said, the old has not yet died, the new is not yet born, and in between is a monster. And I think we live right, a bit right. this monster world, um, but so if you know, at a time when the situation is unfortunately become very narrow-minded and and some of the achievements that we have made over so many years, especially at the multilateral level, are questioned. It's not the time to craft a new arrangement because you will end up with ridiculous uh, narrow focus on national sovereignty issues. So it's not the time. But this being said, if you look at what is to be born, and what the Mm -hmm. challenges are for for humanity and for the planet, it's absolutely clear that what was built in the wake of the Second World War with the chart, uh, with the arrangements on human rights, with all the various rules-based multilateral institutional framework, that yes, it will require reform and and there are things that that could be done uh, and could be adapted to today's context. but we are not at a place today where that can happen in reality. I think this does not prevent us, as as you're doing with this podcast, this does not prevent us from thinking what this new world would look like. This world where indeed you would try very much uh, to give more emphasis and to put more emphasis on in the, in the UN chart, it starts, we the peoples of the United Nations. So what does these peoples mean? What right. have we learned from it? And what, how do we take into account also the fate of future generations? I mean, one of the gaps in the, any governance system of today is that everything is very short term. People think in, in electoral cycles, but they don't really take into account the longer-term effect of their action today and what it has on future generations. So this whole aspect of governance taking into account uh, the impact that we have on, on the planet, on future generations, is certainly missing, um, as it is missing to, to really be able to, to ensure that on some core global issues, such as climate change, um issues that affect everyone where we are all part of humanity and where we feel it that somehow those processes need to take a different level of making sure that they are binding and and we i mean we have seen paris agreement we we saw last year cop 20 um, i mean the katowice talks the the -hmm. the continuation of the Mm -hmm. 24 um, i mean you know it's at snail's pace if one looks at at all the research that comes in from the from the uh, ipc i mean from the intergovernmental panel on, on climate change from the world meteorological organization so it's clear that that is the biggest challenge that humanity faces
0: yeah well i would have to agree with you on that one um given the fact that we work on it every day. Yeah. And I mean, even broader environmental issues, too. Um, you know, there's so much evidence out there that we're really undergoing a a, a truly global ec- ecological crisis. I mean, 200 species will have gone extinct today in the last 24 hours. Right. You know, two two 2.5% of all insect life um, is dying every single year, you know, to the point where in a short period of time, there'll be no insects left with catastrophic consequences for yeah. it. Uh, the human race and the list goes on and on and on and on. So you know, it's very easy to get uh, depressed about uh, the future when you, you know the scientific data out there. And that's why it's so important to emphasize organizations like UNHCR and others that are actually trying to, you know, facilitate positive changes. But that frustration must also manifest in you. I mean, as it does in me, you know, having worked so many years um, on housing rights issues, for instance, and now there's more slums than ever before, you know, trying to get forced evictions banned under international law and succeeding in legal terms, but not at all in practical terms you know so you must also feel a certain degree of frustration knowing that now when you started working for UNHCR there were 10 20 30 million people maximum probably under under protection of UNHCR and now that number is approaching 70 million so mm-hmm. despite all the efforts of so many people to both reverse displacement but also prevent it the numbers keep growing so how do you mm-hmm. grapple with that
1: well i think we can we we need and that's our that our you know, that's what drives us, is of course to ensure that within what we are able to influence, that we must do our utmost, Um, we set our intention, we do the work and and we continue. Quite frankly, just the example that I mentioned before, when um, two years, 2016, the New York Declaration got adopted on refugees and migrants, and with all the political changes that we saw ever since, 2017, 2018, Uh, it is a miracle to have the world community adopt a global compact on refugees, that we managed to achieve this was an utter exercise in conviction, perseverance and courage. And I think, so it is possible to, against all odds, perhaps sometimes we have to believe in miracles as well and, and foster them. Uh, it is possible to to come to agreements. And the silent majority out there wants to do the right thing. They do care about others. They, they do care about what happens to the planet. And somehow we need to find ways and means to mobilize that energy. Because unfortunately, as we all know, a lot of manipulation going on. There's a lot of spreading of all kinds of news that are absolutely have got nothing to do with reality. There's a lot of uh, ways and means out there that try to also stir up emotions that are displaced from, from what really is at the core of it. And I think, so we need to deal with this better, that's our challenge, so for, for us, I think it's a challenge to see how we can mobilize the, the best in people, which exists. And I, I firmly believe in that. I've seen it every day. Um, and somehow, sometimes, you know, there's also this notion of the confused Buddha. Well, there are a lot of confused Buddhas. But, you know, our right, task right. is to ensure that we unveil that and, and make sure that that confusion is replaced by the voice of reason. and by enlightenment. And and that's our work.
0: Every single human being alive has uh, bodhi Bodhicitta within them, right? You know, the ability yes. to one day um, become a, a Bodhisattva, an enlightened being. Um, but there's a lot of obstacles to that placed in the way. Most notably, the fact that, you know, a huge number of people who do make it, to the highest echelons of political power and run countries are probably some of the least qualified, least enlightened people in the world. And that's the pathway that they took in order to uh, um, achieve their particular form of power. And, you know, that is obviously a huge challenge and one that that helps international law to never really reach its full potential um, as there's greater and greater attention placed on issues such as you mentioned um, sovereignty and um, the ability to essentially do whatever you want within your own borders, um, which has so many positive attributes, um, but at the same time, you know, aren't we really on the cusp of needing to think in terms of planetary sovereignty, hmm. a much larger form of sovereignty that takes everything into account instead of just the arbitrary, actually quite fictional borders that exist within every state. What's it going to take to reach that point? I think there is a lot of hope
1: that I see among young people. I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, looking at the U.S., for example, on gun control. When some of those incidents happened over the last couple of years, it was young people Mm -hmm. who demanded reform and who demanded who became politicized. I -hmm. think we see the same thing on climate change issues. Um, I, we saw the very fantastic Swedish young activist who, who, yes, who moved the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there is, I think a different, and I see that myself with, with young people who of course care about their future and, and, and they wonder what's going on in this world. And I think this, we need to capture that. We need to make sure that we pass on our experience. We engage. We exchange. We we get challenged. We get inspired, um, and and marry a little bit this instilling of of yes, change, let's go for a better world. We need to reinstitute a little bit the feeling that I had when when you know 20 60 years ago. I mean, sorry, 54 years ago, uh, when I joined or when I thought about the UN and. And when when I was born, so I, I think that's that what gives that's what gives us can give us hope and must give us hope. Um, at the same time, we also need to deal with those who are absolutely not willing to engage, who harbor fears, and we need to understand them. We need to to understand why it is that some. Populist political leaders get elected, and we need to go behind it. We need to look at it quite matter-of-factly and analyze it, and and see what is it that makes people feel disenfranchised or that they have lost out, and and what is it? How? What type of dialogue can we have? And how can? What can we? What do we need to touch in those? And what do we need to change? And how do we need to take that seriously so that? Whatever anger, whatever strong emotion people harbor is not then used to scapegoat refugees or the planet or other things, but to actually deal with their realities and address it. And I think that is also a wake up call to all of us that maybe we have ignored that.
0: Well, I mean, history is very full of uh, similar instances in the past. And, you know, we have to obviously be very, very mindful of those. And also realize, though, on a more positive note, you alluded to it at the beginning that, you know, every single uh, macro level evolutionary leap in whatever structure you look at is always preceded by a period of intense chaos and toxicity as the sort of dying phases of the previous stage come to an end and a a, a newer, more advanced, more integrated um, stage comes into being. And I think very much at an esoteric level, but also at a very grassroots political level and everything in between, that's where we, um, you know, find ourselves today. There's a lot of fear in a lot of people that Uh. unless they find a convenient scapegoat to blame for all of their um, dilemmas and quandaries, um, they won't be able to eventually achieve what they think uh, is owed to them. So, you know, we're at a very dangerous, but also, you know, very interesting um you know political period mm-hmm. of time i know that you're you're short on time just one more question about this whole idea of you know the dream that everybody's thought of at one point of time or another even if it was just in a in a flash of a pan moment in a classroom in college or something this yeah. whole concept of world citizenship the idea that's been bandied about for literally centuries upon centuries even longer i mean even socrates himself Um, in ancient Greece said, I am neither Athenian nor Greek. I am a citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. So this is not at all a new concept. This is something that's been around for literally millennia. And yet, you know, you and I may feel intrinsically as world citizens, I know I do, I presume mm. you do, yeah, <laughs> um, I, where I, there's I, really well. no difference between any other human being and, and myself. You know, We recognize that what we share is so much infinitely greater than the things that um, may distinguish us. And it's those things that distinguish us that that basically amount to culture. And those are the things that we want to preserve and that really make life worth living. But practically speaking, can we imagine a world whereby um, w- the moment we're born, we don't simply get the nationality of the territory in which we are, um, in which we come into this earth, but we also get um, sort of a world citizenship status. And at such in such a way, similar to a degree of what Europeans would get now by being members of the European Union, they get an, a European nationality in effect as well as a national nationality. Um, and our our belief really is that after two or three generations of doing this, this will become just second nature everywhere Mm -hmm. and people will automatically do it. And as things evolve, every single person by having, by virtue of having the same citizenship status, will also have access to the same rights and protections. And we will have pushed the ball along Mm -hmm. a little bit. You have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it's, it's of course a fantastic concept to ensure that, what actually should be happening at a deeply human level, that we feel connected with, with, with the earth, with the planet, with human beings, with, with the animal world, with the plant world. I mean, that, you know, to be, to be connected, this connectivity is, is extremely important. If it is expressed through world citizenship, I think if one also conveys it in this way, I think that that would help a lot because indeed it, it transcends national sovereignty. I think my own experience. We need both. We need to anchor a lot more in what's happening at the local level. And again, mm-hmm. I think there are some very interesting things that are happening about, you know, local produce, um, the initiatives at the grassroots level that we often see on 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 ecologically sound projects, uh, the even. The, the alternative currencies that, that emerge. I mean, there is a lot of things that, that are happening at the grassroots level that are really almost harbingers of of, of what a world is that is connected, and mm-hmm. and and also you know creates a different sense of of of, uh, of humanity and 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 connection with the planet. Um, and then you have the this deep connection at the global level—that whatever happens to people in Mali, for example, because I just was there last week—affects right. us all, affects me, and affects you in Australia. Right. Um, right. That that it's that it's absolutely not acceptable to dehumanize people in the way it, as it is happening uh, today, uh, unfortunately, in the country where you live, in Australia, where people are put off out of sight, out of mind, out of rights in offshore processing facilities. I mean, that's that's so fundamentally, deeply wrong that, uh, you know, people are put into these horrible conditions in, on Manus Island or on Nuru, languishing there for years on end, with many of them, uh, with very serious medical problems, and that this does not become a public outcry, you know, for for fundamental change. Uh, and, and that connection is is an incredibly important one. We need to make that connection. We need to feel that humanity is not not one that only applies to one part of the world uh, and not to another. And that whatever happens to any of us is having an impact on us. And uh, I wish the refugee world teaches us that every day. Um, Yeah, so this idea of, of Global connection, while being locally rooted and grounded, is incredibly important for the future.
0: Everybody needs a place that is safe and secure, no matter where it is on the planet. And a realization that all of us woke up today, ultimately, in the very same place, which is on the surface of the very finite surface of the only planet in the universe that has life on it. Right. And we often forget that simple, obvious, overwhelmingly obvious fact that we simply discard as we go about our daily business. And when when that awareness is there, you know, it becomes, you know, second nature to care about. All the other parts of the planet. With that, you know, we just want to thank you very much, Volker, for doing this. Uh, this evening, and maybe we'll have another chance to do it soon. Yes. And so thank you very much. Thank you, um, Scott. um, My pleasure. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yes, thanks a lot. Thank you.